everyone. It's January 29th, Friday morning, 2021, and uh, we are pre-recording our teaching this morning so that on Sabbath, no one needs to be here uh, messing around with technical equipment and all that. So it's just me this morning, and, and Tim's behind the orange wall here in the tech room, uh, manning the knobs and the levers that make all this work and come to life. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to be in chapters 8 and 9, and I've titled this, Living a Selfless Life. Now, it's just my opinion, but I think that the heaviest burden we have is the burden of self. And I don't think God gives us much grace in bearing the burden of self. But through Yeshua, through his Torah, he shows us how we can lay down this heavy burden. And Yeshua gives an example of what it's like to live a selfless life. And a selfless life is free, and it's joyful, it's purposeful, and it's uh, attractive. So I hope that by the end of this teaching, you'll identify some things in your life. I know I've been convicted about things in mine that are selfish and self-centered. And I realize if I can just let go of these things, die to these things, I'll experience heightened freedom and a closeness to God and be a, a sharper instrument in his hands. And I think that's what we all want for ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this, uh, this, these two chapters uh, divide themselves into five pretty neat sections. And we'll just take them a section at the time. And the first section is about meat offered to idols. So let's read the first six verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning meat offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That verse right there is one worth memorizing. In fact, you should print that out and put it on your fridge. If anyone imagines that he knows something, and all of us do, Paul tells us he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Uh, in the Greek, it says, is nothing in the world. It's a nothing. It's a big nothing burger. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Master, or one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Paul talks quite a bit about meat that is sacrificed to idols, and whether or not we as believers uh, are permitted to eat such meat. Now, this may not seem like a very pertinent topic for today, but it has many applications today. In, in a lot of different areas. For example, I talk to believers who refuse to eat halal meat. Halal meat is meat that is prepared by Muslims and has met the Muslim criteria for slaughter and preparation and so on, and it's marked halal. And some people believe that since this is something that is... Uh, maintained and controlled and produced by Islam, that we as believers should not eat it. And you probably have your own opinion about that. And I'm not going to tell you what your opinion should be, but that is a contentious topic, and it's very similar to what Paul's talking about. And we all have opinions about all kinds of things. Um, I know people who believe that during these days of COVID, you must wear a mask when you go out in public, and they have science on their side. And there are others who believe just as strongly that masks are worthless. In fact, it's a government plot to separate us from one another, and they have science on their side. Some believe we should all get vaccinated, and they quote the science. Others say we should not get vaccinated. They quote the science. Everybody's got an opinion. But what do you do with opinions? 
How do you know if your opinion is right? And is it even important to know whether your opinion is right or not? That is the, the, the crux of what Paul is getting at here. Now, you'll notice on the screen I have some other passages. Paul will pick up this topic again over in chapter 10, verses 19 to 33. And I encourage you, if you're watching this right now and you can, just to pause the video, go over and read that. And also in Romans 14, he covers the same information, but he brings out other insights as well. So you may want to read both of those and then come back here and restart the video. One of the things we have to understand about the problem with, with uh, meat and idols is this. A lot of people think, well, why don't they just get their meat at the butcher shop? Well, that was a problem in the first century because the temples, the idolatrous pagan temples, were the butcher shops. Almost eight years ago, Robin and I had the privilege of going to Italy for our granddaughter's birth. And uh, we were there for two weeks. We had some time to kill, waiting for our, our little granddaughter to come along. And so we drove down the coast, and I had always wanted to go to Pompeii. And Pompeii is an absolutely incredible place. I would say uh, the downtown part of Pompeii is easily as big or bigger than the downtown Akron area. And this uh, has been being excavated for well over 100 years, almost 140 years. And they're still not close to uncovering this entire city. They're still working on it. What happened at Pompeii is this. This is a, a photo I took uh, in one of the main streets of Pompeii. And back in 79 AD, about nine years after the temple was destroyed, Mount Vesuvius, which is in the background, uh, erupted as a volcano. And this entire part of the mountain, which would have filled this part here where this big crater is, that entire part of the mountain blew off. And the ash all drifted south, and it landed right on top of Pompeii. And volcanic ash is incredibly dense and heavy stuff. It's not like the ash you get in your fireplace or after a campfire. This stuff is dense and heavy like sand. And it was so hot, and it's covered everything to a depth of about 10 feet or more. And the people who died in Pompeii, and they all died, every man, woman, child, and animal died in Pompeii, they died from oxygen deprivation. Because the hot ashes began to fall, it was so hot, it just burned all the oxygen out of the air. And the people died that way. And uh, so it what it did, though, is the ash settled over the entire city and basically just froze it in time. And as they've been excavating, they find entire homes. Usually the roofs are caved in, but they find homes, shops, temples, stadiums, arenas, government buildings, parks, uh, graveyards. They find it all, and it's just preserved in time and uh, all from almost 2,000 years ago. Now, I bring this up because as you go through Pompeii, you find pagan temples. And what's kind of strange is in this Italian city, which was considered the jewel of the Roman Empire, you didn't just find temples to Roman and Greek gods, but here was a temple I took a photo of, a temple to Isis, an Egyptian god. And this temple had steps going up and a courtyard. And right over here in the left-hand corner is the altar where sacrifices are made. And there are other small buildings and uh, there was an inside part and a basement. But over here on the left, this area over here on the left, there's a separate building in this courtyard. And some of the priests would stay there, but there was also a kitchen. And it's very possible that this is where the meat market was because these sacrifices, uh, as with most sacrifices, the one who brought the offering would take part of the meat with him, but the rest of it belonged to the priests. And the priests, of course, could not eat all of this meat. So what did they do? They sold it. So if you wanted fresh meat in the first century, and if there was not a kosher butcher, a Jewish butcher around, you had to go to the local pagan temple to buy your fresh meat. Um, 
Of course, you could always slaughter your own meat, but not everyone owned animals and had flocks and herds, especially inside of a city. So this was a real problem for first century believers. Is it proper for me as a believer to go to a pagan temple, not to worship, not to bring a sacrifice, but just to buy a beef roast to bring home to my family or some lamb chops? And there were some who had strong feelings that this was improper. And others said, it doesn't make any difference. It's just a piece of meat. So Paul addresses this because this was a very divisive issue back in the first century. So let's look again at these verses and see if we can figure out what Paul is trying to tell them. So let's start again in verse 1. Now concerning meat offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now in Greek... The word knowledge is gnosis, and the word for opinion is almost identical. It comes from the same root. And I don't think I'm violating the text too much if we just translate the word knowledge as the word opinion. Let's see how it reads that way. Now concerning meat offered to idols, we know that all of us possess an opinion. These opinions puff us up, but love builds up. In the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fleshly man who's driven by his physical appetites, the soulish man, which is motivated by his soulish appetites, his own mind, his own will, his own emotions. And then he describes the spiritual man who is motivated by spiritual appetites, rules that are somehow apart and separate from this world. They're spiritual, heavenly rules heavenly motivations. Watchman Nee wrote an amazing book. It's the only book he ever penned himself by hand. It's a massive work. It's called The Spiritual Man. And he talks about these three different kinds of people. And I read this book many years ago, and I've gone back many times to read parts of it again. But the thing that always stands out in my mind is that when he describes the soulish man, he always describes him as a person who is full of opinions, full of opinions, overflowing with opinions. He has an opinion on everything, and he insists that you hear them. We need to be careful of this. Having an opinion does not make you any different from anyone else. Your opinion may be different, but the fact you're always carrying opinions around and spouting them is not really helpful. People want wisdom. People want insight. And Paul is saying, everybody has an opinion on things, but let's step up to being spiritual. Yeshua rarely gave an opinion on something. What he gave was truth about something. Of course, the soulish person thinks that his opinion is truth, but somehow you can tell it's still just his opinion, and he does not know as he should know yet. And as I get older, I get more and more tired of opinions, even my own. And I never could understand talk radio that wants people to call in, we want to hear what you have to say. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear the truth. I want the facts. I want the news. I don't care what people think about it. And um, maybe it's just an old age setting in, but I want the truth. I want to know what God thinks about something. And you know what, As I, I, I keep thinking about Yeshua's conversation with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. And he tells Nicodemus, he says, people who are born of the Spirit, who, people who, who operate in the Spirit, they're like the wind. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. In other words, people on the ground operate according to physical principles. But people born of the Spirit operate according to higher principles and invisible principles. And what is predictable down here on this level is not predictable on that level. And um, being filled with your own opinions and your own self are like having sandbags tied to your ankles. They'll prevent you. They'll prevent you from walking in God's Spirit. They'll prevent you from seeing things from God's point of view. If we could just lay down ourself 
and begin to step away from our own way of seeing things and doing things and say, Father, what is your way? I want to walk in it. We can learn to die to self and lay self down, live a selfless life. We're going to experience freedom like we've never known and a closeness to God that we've never known. And Paul touches on this as we go further. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is the solution to the soulish man, to increase your love of God, to love God more. I'm convinced that a person who does not love God cannot have faith in him. Because as we'll learn later in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that love believes all things. That word believe is the word for faith. And to the degree you truly love God, to that degree you will truly have faith in him and it will transform the way you live. We all need to love God more. And if you want to love God more, you need to know him better. And knowing him better means to love him more. And if anyone knows God or loves God, he is known by him. This helps answer a question many people have from, first, uh, from Matthew 7.23. Yeshua says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work toilessness. How could it be that Yeshua, when he's on his throne of judgment in the future, how could he tell someone, I, you're not familiar, I don't, I don't recognize you, I, don't, I never knew you. Won't he know all things? Oh, you have to understand that Yeshua is using the word know in its Jewish context. And to know something means to be one with it. Whenever you see the word know used by by Yeshua or being used in the Torah or being used by one of the writers who is, uh, has a Jewish background, you'll recognize that when they use the word know, they're meaning that you're truly one with something. The knower and the knowledge become one. Uh, when it talks about a man and a woman coming together in intimacy, uh, like it says, Adam knew his wife. Abraham knew his wife. It means they became one. And to know something, it means to be one with it. And so Paul tells us, if you love God, you're known by him. He becomes one with you. And Yeshua can tell these people, you didn't do the Torah. You didn't keep my commandments. You weren't interested in my standard for living. I don't know you. We're not one. Okay? So we need to step away from our Western thinking of knowledge as just something that exists in the mind. Knowledge is something that infuses our body and our lives and our wills so that we become one with God because we love him. And if we truly can grow to love him, not only will he know us and be one with us, we'll know him and be one with him in a brand new way. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. It's a big nothing. There is no pagan god behind that idol. There is no power behind that idol. There might be some demonic force, but that's a nothing burger as well. Yeah, I know, demons do exist. But when someone brings a, an animal and sacrifices it to the god Isis, it's still just a piece of meat. Demons don't come and possess that meat. And if you feed it your family, your family does not become demon-possessed. So we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. And can I just step out here and take a risk and speak to those of you who are tempted to engage in pagan noia, looking for pagan roots and everything, and avoiding things because it's a pagan origin? When you do that, you're treating the pagan gods as if they're really something. And they're a big nothing. They have no real existence. And the enemy, I believe, has deceived so many, many sincere, well-meaning believers with this fear of paganism that the enemy has robbed them of things God has given us. And so when you 
ignore something, you set something aside that God has for you because you believe it has some pagan origin. You are giving weight and faith to something that does not exist. And remember, everything that the enemy uses, claiming it has pagan origins, is something that he stole from God. According to the Torah, when you steal something, you have to pay it back double. So I look forward to seeing how God makes this pan out when the enemy has to pay back double for everything he, as the thief, has stolen from us. So an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. There's only one God. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, they're just so-called, they're not really gods, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. He's referring to the pagan world where there are temples to every god imaginable. And think of Hinduism. How many millions of gods does Hinduism have? Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one master, one Lord, one King, Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is a, a, an amazing passage. I love this passage. And I want you to follow, follow me on this. It says that there's one God, the Father. I'm just going to put the word God here, but you can put the Father. There's God from whom are all things. And down here at the bottom, there's us. Because it's through him that we exist. But how does God communicate to us? How does God give us everything freely? How does he communicate it to us? It's always through his son, Yeshua. Always. So things come from God, they come to us, but they always come through Yeshua. You can think of it this way. God is the speaker. He's the creator. He's the speaker. He, he spoke the creation to existence. And we are to be the hearers. But everything comes through Yeshua, who is the speech itself. He is the word. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and the Tav. He's the alphabet through whom God communicates. So, it's this box right here that everything comes through and through whom we also communicate back to God. This goes along with what it says in Hebrews 3.1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle, now, apostle, apostello means a sent one, a shiliach in Hebrew, one who is sent from God to us. So he's the apostle who brings God to us. It says, consider Yeshua the apostle and high priest of our confession. What does a high priest do? Represents man to God. Yeshua is the latter who brings God's message to us, brings God's presence to us, but he's also the high priest, the latter through whom we approach God. We send our prayers through the mediator, Yeshua. He serves both of these roles, to bring God to us, to bring us to God. This is why he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And you'll always notice that Paul is extremely careful not to call Yeshua God. But he always shows Yeshua as being God's speech, God's communication. Now, here's the tricky part. Right now, you are either watching me or listening to me. Truth be told, you don't see me, you don't hear me at all. You're looking at some electronic pixels on a screen and hearing a signal, an electronic signal. By the time you watch this, Hours will have passed, maybe days, weeks, or months. What you're doing, you're looking at, you're experiencing something that comes from me and comes to you, but through this electronic media. So is it all okay to say that you're listening to Grant or you're watching Grant? Sure, it's fine to say that. 
but we all know the truth. You're really watching something that proceeds from me. You're listening to something that's coming from my mind. And you know what? I am what I speak. I am what I do. You understand that, those principles and how they work? This is why when we hear Yeshua, we hear God. When we see Yeshua act, we see God acting. And yet Yeshua says God is invisible. So hopefully this will help you to, to, to picture the difficulty of what's going on. And I want to be very careful when I say this, but people ask me, well, Grant, do you believe Yeshua is God? And that's a very tricky question. Because there's nowhere in the scriptures where it just comes out and says, Yeshua is God. But do I believe he is? Yes, I do. But I always have to whisper that. Because you see, Yeshua did not come proclaiming himself as God. The scriptures do not proclaim him as God. But I think God is delighted when we catch on secretly and in our spirits who Yeshua really is. It's almost like God wants us to recognize who Yeshua really is without telling us. The Bible proclaims that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Word made flesh. But then he wants us to catch it in our spirits, something that isn't quite said, and that is that Yeshua is indeed divine. There's always a problem the moment we say Jesus is God. Because the moment you say that, you've overstepped what the scriptures will literally say because you open a can of worms. Because think about it. When you say Jesus is God, you're saying that God has brown hair, six feet tall, and has a mother. Also, God dies. You see the problems that opens up. We need to stick to the words the scriptures use. And we see that everything God communicates to us, he communicates through his son, through Yeshua, through his word, his living word. And to encounter that living word is to encounter God. But I think we make a mistake when we insist that believers cling to the idea, cling to the words, and, and we require them to say the words, Jesus is God. Because when we make them say that, they're saying, this, saying it because we tell them to say it. I think God would rather them say it because they've had a realization, like Peter did. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. I think the way we discover who Yeshua really is, is just as important as knowing who he really is. And God wants to reveal that to us in a very spiritual way. So, I've really taken a rabbi trail, and I hope I open, haven't caused more confusion. My whole goal here is to alleviate confusion and to st stick with expressing spiritual concepts with the words the scriptures use. So, Paul is very clear. He says, For there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And there's one Master, one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So I hope you'll keep this, this graph in mind and, uh, and not let it confuse you, but hopefully help enlighten you. Well, let's continue to the second section. The second section Paul takes a rabbi trail to talk about the weaker brother. So let's pick it up in, in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not every believer understands this principle that we've just been discussing. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Did you catch that through former association? He's saying that some of you, before you came to know Messiah, 
You believed in these idols, and you took sacrifices to these temples. You believed in the gods these temples represented. You believed that they were actually real when they're not. And now that you realize that's all a fake, you realize that these gods don't exist. You realize there's one God, there's one Messiah through whom he deals with us. It's hard for you to break that idea that when you go and get a piece of meat from that temple, that somehow you're endorsing what takes place at that temple. That somehow you're confirming that God, that pagan God, that idol. And your former association with that temple makes it very difficult for you to have anything to do with it now. This is very understandable. Because former associations exert a powerful influence on our freedom of choice. They really do. This is understandable. Um, I've talked to several people who, um, who, when it comes to liturgy, they have a very difficult time using a siddur because they came from a background in a, a church or synagogue where the siddur was used all the time for prayer. It was a horrible experience. It was dead. It was empty. It was repetitive. And well, they said, I could just never go back to that. What has happened is that their former association with a type of liturgical prayer has so tainted them that they now cannot enter into a healthy use of liturgical prayer. And we need to try to break these things the best we can. There's part of us as human beings having these physical bodies and having physical brains where having former associations could be life-saving. For example, if you step out into a street and almost get hit by a car, that will imprint upon you. You're going to be very careful never to do that again. That's a healthy use of former associations that we've survived. But there are other unhealthy applications of this. And we need to, um, to ask ourselves, what are the things I've subtracted from my life because they remind me of something in my past? when really these things are not bad things. And we need to try to break these former associations so we do not rob ourselves of blessings that God has for us. So you ask yourself, what are the things that you need to work on? Now, I'm not saying that if you wrestled with alcoholism and and spent a lot of your, your life in a bar getting drunk, I'm not saying you should go back to the bar. But if you spent a lot of your your past life uh, before knowing the Lord and you spent it, let's say, overindulging in sports activities and watching sports. So now you say, oh, I can never watch that again. Never watch sports again. Well, what if God wants you to go with a friend to a, a game to spend some time with him? Or to come over to someone's house to spend time watching a game on TV? Break that former association and the negativity it has for you and learn to express it in a new way. I, I, you know, I'm reminded of Aaron. You know the story of the golden calf, the uh, Egel Zahav, it's called in Hebrew. And what a painful, embarrassing, shameful episode that was in Aaron's life. But what's interesting is that later on, not too much later, God gives a commandment and tells Aaron, I want you to bring an eagle as a sacrifice. And the rabbis all comment on this, that what God was doing was saying, yeah, Aaron, what you did was wrong with that golden calf, but I want you to learn calves still have importance to me, and I want you to bring one as a sacrifice. So overcome your repulsion of a calf and anything to do with a calf. And let's bring it back into order, face up to it, because the calf is not sin. I want you to bring one to me. And I want you to use a calf as in an act of worship to me and overcome that former association. So you work on it in your own life. What are the things you may need to work on in this area? So we go on, and he says, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience... Conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. 
We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. And he's talking about meat in particular here. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, the ones who are weak in their conscience. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge reclining in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Messiah died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Messiah. Therefore, if meat makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, this is a hard concept not just for people to grasp, but also to put into practice. In other words, I have rights and I have freedoms that are given me by the scriptures. But if I have a brother who's weak in his conscience and sees what I have freedom and the endorsement of scripture to do, but it, it looks to him as something offensive, it looks to him like something that's not, something from his past, then I set aside my right so as not to stumble him. Let me give you an example. I was raised in the Baptist church where there was never alcohol in our homes. Never, ever, under any circumstances, never our homes. No one ever drank it. And yet we would slam down pork chops and ham sandwiches. Now, in a Jewish home, you will see wine used, especially on Sabbath. It's a part of the, the, the celebration of the Sabbath and of, of the blessings of Sabbath. So wine is consumed. But you won't see any ham or pork chops there. Now, which of these two is in line with Scripture? Of course, the Jewish one, the Jewish take, is the one that's in line with the Torah, with Scripture. Wine, God permits, but not drunkenness. But ham and those kinds of meat products, he forbids. So, if I'm having someone who is raised Baptist for whom alcohol is simply forbidden, and I have him into my home or her, I'm not going to put alcohol in front of them. I'm not going to put a glass of wine in front of them because I don't want to stumble them. Because in their minds, that still is something that's attached to a sinful life, even though I know it isn't. So I have freedom to drink a glass of wine. Yeshua, he drank wine and he ate, and they called him a a drunkard and a glutton, but he was not a drunkard and not a glutton. So for the sake of the brother with a weaker conscience, I set my freedom aside. We live in a society that's all about rights rather than responsibilities. And I'm telling you, as believers, as disciples in Yeshua, We should be shedding our rights like dead skin. We should just be letting them go. Because the more I cling to my rights, the more miserable I make myself. The more I cling to my rights, the more I'm tying sandbags to my ankles and I cannot walk in the Spirit. I cannot really move in the way God wants me to move. Psychologists tell us that there are two prime motivators for every word we say and every action we take. And these two motivators, that's very much in line with Scripture, these two motivators are either fear or love. Everything we do is either out of fear or out of love. Because fear and love in many ways are exact opposites. Fear is self-protective. Fear is holding on, protecting, and, and not letting things go. Holding on to my rights, this this insecurity we have that if I lay down a right, I'm losing a piece of myself. I'm becoming a slave to somebody. But love is always giving. Love is always looking out the best for the other, not for myself. Love says, I don't need that right. I'm willing to let that go for your sake. Love, it, it exalts in being a servant to others and to God. Love has discovered the secret that real happiness and joy comes in being a bondservant of Yeshua and laying our rights down. Rights are heavy things. And that weight of self is always expressed in my rights. 
if I can lay down my rights, I can begin to lay down the self. I can begin to walk like Yeshua walked. So I just hope you'll let that sink in and, and think about that and, and ask yourself, what are the things I keep clinging to? What are the rights, legitimate rights that I have? But my holding on to them is making me miserable and is preventing me from being a disciple of Yeshua. Now throughout this passage, Paul is talking about the conscience. And I want to review what we covered way back in 2 Timothy 1. The first teaching we did on 2 Timothy 1, I think it was back uh, early in the summer. And we discovered that the word for conscience is sunedesis. Sunedesis, it's the same word used here in 1 Corinthians 8. And in the scriptures, we see this word, the conscience, being described as good. Good, or meaning strong as being clear or as being weak or even as being seared. Now these first two are good. We want these. We don't want a weak conscience. We don't want a seared conscience. And the definition of conscience, it it literally means... uh, Joint knowledge, to know something with something, to know something the same as someone else. But the word is used, and the way it's used has this definition, it's awareness within one's self. It's your inner awareness. Not awareness of yourself, but inside of you, an awareness of things outside of yourself. But not physical awareness. Physical awareness we can call sight, vision. We can have good vision. We can have clear vision. I mean, you can have good vision, but if you have a speck in your eye, then your vision's not clear. When you remove the speck or the, the dirty sunglasses, then your vision becomes clear again. We want vision that's good. We want it to be clear. But some people have weak vision. They need corrective lenses. Some people are blind. They have no vision at all. So the conscience is like spiritual vision. The spiritual ability to see, awareness within yourself of something. And as we look at the scriptures, it is always shown to be awareness of one of two things, or both. Awareness of what? First of all, awareness of moral judgments relating to right and wrong. We talk about how we're born with a conscience, and the conscience is one of the functions of your spirit. And children, generally, unless they're born a psychopath, they have a sensitive conscience. When they've done something wrong, you can tell they've done something wrong because you can see it written all over them. Their conscience is causing them pain. When you've said something hurtful, you realize you hurt someone's feelings or you are insensitive, your conscience bothers you and you just can't rest or you call that person and you, you ask their forgiveness and, and make sure things are right. And uh, this is the way a normal person's conscience works. And this conscience is this awareness of moral judgments relating to right and wrong. But there's another way the word sunatesis is used in the scriptures. It's awareness within oneself of God as sovereign creator. If you recall, when we were looking at First Corinthians or Second um, Timothy. Uh, was 2 Timothy, correct? Yes, 2 Timothy 1. This question arose because Paul, back in Acts, I think it's chapter 23, verse 1, he talks about how he's always had a clear conscience before God. And we ask the question, how could Paul possibly have a clear conscience and always have had a clear conscience if at one time he persecuted the followers of Yeshua? How can you have a clear conscience about that? Well, he didn't have a clear conscience according to part A. He knew he had done wrong, and he openly confesses that. But according to part B, his conscience was clear because he could look back at the wicked things he did, had done, and realize that the sovereign God had purpose in it. And those things that Paul engaged in, even though they were wicked, he could look back on them now and see them in a, a much larger perspective, that even though I was focused on persecuting my Messiah, God was working something bigger. 
This is an amazing thing. If we can lay hold of this, if we can have the faith lay hold of the fact that our sovereign God and creator uses even our errors, our selfishness, our mistakes, our sins, and our wickedness. And you can look back over a life and you look over it, you feel so guilty, but then God says, I used even those wrong things you did. You'll see later how I used them. I use them to bring repentance to you. I use them to bring maturity to others. And in due time, it'll be revealed how in my sovereignty, I even wove the dark threads of your sins into the tapestry of human history. This is based on what Paul was saying earlier in the chapter about how there's just one God. And from him are all things. And throughout the Torah and in the prophets, we, we find this reinforced. Let me just read you a, a quick passage from Isaiah. One of my favorite, favorite passages in Isaiah 45. I hope I put it down on my list. Yes, here it is. Verses 5 through 7. God says, I am Adonai, and there is nothing else Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is nothing besides me. I am Adonai, and there is nothing else. I form light and create darkness. I make shalom and create evil. That word ra for evil means pressure or unpleasantness. I am Adonai who does all these things. People with a strong conscience are aware of this. They have good eyesight, so they can realize that in the spiritual realm, not only my sins, but the sins of others, even the sins of others, God can use in my life to soften me, to rub off the sharp edges, to teach me patience, to test my love, um, to teach me discipleship, And if we allow our consciences to grow stronger this way, we're going to find ourselves to be less reactive to people. We'll find ourselves being less controlled by people because we see others and their immaturities and shortcomings and faithlessness through a much larger perspective. And we realize God will even use their shortcomings to accomplish his purpose. That's the kind of God we have. He's an amazing, incredible God. But I think for too many of us, our God is way too small. Well, let's continue on. The third section is Paul's apostleship, part A. (laughs) He goes through verses 1 through 7, and then he does a rabbi trail, and then comes back to his apostleship in verse 19. Now, I know you're all afraid of this short little chapter 8 took this long, the long chapter, chapter 9, is going to last an eternity. But actually, chapter 9 is going to go pretty quick. So, let's get started. Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Yeshua, our Lord and Master? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, why does he go into this whole screed about why he's an apostle? Because he's just told them a very different th- difficult thing. These people all have very strong opinions about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he has now revealed what God has to say about that based on Scripture. And a lot of them are not going to like Paul's opinion, so to speak, because it conflicts with their own. So Paul has to do this embarrassing thing in justifying his authority to teach what he's just taught, to make a decision for them, say, listen, this is the truth. So whatever your opinion was before, this is the truth. And the truth is, meat that is sacrificed to an idol It's still just a piece of meat. It has the same nourishment and no dangers to it. So you're free to eat it. But now the qualifier is not whether the meat is tainted or not, but whether if a brother who's weak sees you eating meat that came from an idol, from from a temple, if it might be a stumbling block to him. 
In other words, lay down your rights, lay down your opinions, and think about your brother. What is going to build him up? What might stumble him? In other words, the strong makes way for the weak. The strong sets aside his strength for the sake of not stumbling the weak. We need to make sure that as strong believers, we lay down our rights for the sake of those who aren't quite strong yet. This is why a parent, a burly father, big muscle-bound dad, will be so sensitive and so delicate with his child because he realized the child is weak. And he'll use his strength and sacrifice his strength for the sake of the one that's weak. We need to be the same way. That's the way Yeshua was with us. And that's the way we need to be with the weaker brother. So Paul goes into this whole thing about how he has the right and the authority to make this call. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of, of the master and Cephas? Oh, what do you know about that? Did you know Peter had a believing wife that he took along with him? The first pope had a wife. Think about that. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The other apostles didn't work for a living. The community supported them, but Paul and Barnabas, they worked to earn their own way. They did not rely on the gifts of others. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Basically what Paul's saying is, if I'm not an apostle, I'd have to be a fool to live like this. The very fact that I live and I claim no rights that I have coming to me, but everything I do and everything I live is a sacrifice, it's painful, it's difficult, but I still do it, that alone should be proof that I'm called by God to do what I'm doing. Because I'm not getting any physical benefits from it. And then, this launches him into a second rabbi trail, where he talks about compensation for those who are in, uh, in ministry. He says, those who receive compensation, he gives examples of this. We've seen a couple already, but he continues. Verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the Torah say the same? Hmm, Paul must not have gotten the memo that the Torah has done away with, huh? In fact, you'll find through all of Paul's letters, he quotes the Torah for his authority. For it is written in the Torah of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 29.4, if I can read my tiny writing, 25.4, I think. So he takes this verse about an ox not being muzzled when it's doing its work, and he applies it to anyone who does God's work. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we, do not we even more? So he's, he's uh, uses the, the ox. Earlier he used the shepherd, the farmer, but the ox, the plowman, the thresher, the priest, the evangelist, as he goes on. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We have not made use of this right. It is a right. We have it coming to us. But we don't claim it. We let it go. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Messiah, the good news of, of Messiah. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, these are the priests, in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the good news should get their living by the good news. But we have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not looking for anything from you. 
for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. In other words, he says, I'm content to live this way because I know that if I continue to live this way, serving God, proclaiming the gospel, earning my own way, making my own living, I know that I'm doing it out of love for him. I know I'm living in faith that God's going to provide. For if I proclaim the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. I'll be miserable if I'm not doing what I'm doing. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my proclaiming, I pray present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the good news. For Paul, the reward is the doing itself. And you'll see this further and uh, over in verses 23 to 27. So this passage here, Paul, you could tell, was embarrassed to even share this. And I think he's even chewing out <laughs> the Corinthians for forcing his hand and making him talk about himself. He generally didn't like to talk about himself. But he does it so they'll know that he has the authority of apostle. Not only that, he's not getting any of the benefits of the apostle. He is serving strictly because he loves God. He loves these people. And he's utterly committed to what God wants for his life. And he lays down all of his rights. He truly is a bond slave to God. And so when the people look at this, they have to think twice about what he's told them. About what he's commanded them in regards to meat that is sacrificed to idols. So he's saying, look over your own opinions. Look over your own feelings. What I have to say to you comes from a heart that's utterly and totally sold out to God. You can trust what I'm telling you. And then Paul returns to his own apostleship in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, of course, he was a Jew. And as a Jew, he could communicate with the Jews in their own, their own idiom, their own language, in their own traditions. To those under the law, now these would be the Judeans. These would be the Jews who live around Jerusalem in the south who are very legalistic. These would be the, the Sadducees and Pharisees who... Uh, were under the law. They took on all the rabbinic additions. He says to them, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, He's, that I might win those under the law. What he's saying is, for those who take on all these extra commandments, these extra traditions that are elevated to commandments, all these rabbinic additions, I can go among them and keep them all though I'm not under that legalistic yoke. But I'll take it on if I can reach them. To those outside of the law, outside the Torah, I became as one outside the Torah. Now that sounds like he laid the Torah aside, doesn't it? But look what he says next. But not being outside the Torah of God. In other words, for those Jews who don't follow all the rabbinic enactments, I can live with them, keeping the Torah without all the rabbinic additions. And even among the Gentiles, I can live among them, but I never live as apart from the Torah of God, and under, but under the Torah of Yeshua. I will always keep the Torah as it's written. But as far as the additions, I can take them or leave them, that I might win those outside the Torah. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I love Paul's ability to, to flex without ever compromising. His ability to, to meet people where they're at without ever compromising the Torah of God. We need to learn to do the same. 
And he says, I do it all for the sake of the good news that I may share with them in its blessings. And then he brings the book to a close. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, it may sound like all of us are running this race, but only one of us is going to win it. So why should I even, even race? Because I know spiritual people who are so much better at running this race than I am. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is run the race as if only one person can win, and you are determined to be that person. That's what he's saying. Saying run the race as one who's determined to win and there's only one winner. Run it as if that were the case. I know that God wants all of us to run the race and he wants us all to win. But we won't do that if we think we're going to lose. We all have to be determined to run this race with everything we have. Remember that races back then were not run for personal glory so much as for the glory of their city and of their king. And the runner's victory won him glory only to the degree it won glory for the king. It was never purely for himself. It's like the Olympics. You run for your country. You get glory when you win. Of course you do. But you get the glory because your country wins when you win. We're running for God, for his kingdom. And let's never forget that. So run that you may obtain it. Verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. They would run to win an olive wreath on their head or even maybe a gold wreath, but all that passes away. But we run for an award that is imperishable. I'm telling you folks, especially in these dark days in which we live, we have got to set our sights on the other side of this life. We have to be like Yeshua, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. He could put the embarrassment and shame aside because he could see the joy that was set before him. We have got to set our spiritual focus on the goal. This life here is so short and before you know it, it's over. As you get older, you look back over your life and think, how did they go by so fast? Where did all the years go? And um, we only get one chance here. And if we invest it in a reward that's eternal, that's the wisest thing you can do. But too many times people who call themselves disciples, they'll sacrifice what is eternal for something that's temporal. They'll set aside that reward and the glory that God wants to give us there because we want to invest our time instead in something that is menial, mundane, and uh, it does not last for time or for eternity. We want to do things that stroke our own egos, pad our own wallets, and uh, give us pleasure here and now for a short time at the expense of doing things that are timeless. Let's learn to get our priorities right and not get distracted by the things of this world. Verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. He's not a fleshly man. His flesh does not determine his course. His spirit is what sets the course for his flesh and for his soul. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after proclaiming to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul always kept in mind his own capacity to fail. He knew well the, the instruction, the scriptures, that we should take heed lest we fall. And so many times there are pastors and and spiritual leaders who have started off well, did well, but they got careless, they got a little cocky, and they fell, and it was such a tremendous fall. Don't ever underestimate your own ability to goof up and realize that you're vulnerable.
And when you realize you're vulnerable and you're weak, you're going to hang on more tightly to the Lord. And I encourage you to always do that. I have discussion questions for you, and you can print these out if you go on the website later. And, uh, but here they are if you just want to look at them on the video. Compare 1 Corinthians 8.6 with Romans 11.36. You'll see why later. And how do you reconcile these two passages? This is going to be a fun discussion if you have a group of people with you. Identify a recent incident when you voiced a strong opinion and it damaged a relationship. What do you plan to do about it? What former associations are preventing you from expanding your soul? What do you think is the state of your conscience? Is it good? Is it clear? Is it weak? Or is it seared? And how can you improve it? Do you serve God? Do you serve others? What is your motivation for each? And then one last question. What rights are you holding on to that are making you miserable? Because the source of almost all your misery in your life is the ego. And the ego will express itself as rights and opinions. So, you want to be happy? Let go of the ego. Put it to death. Let go of your rights. And learn the joy that comes in serving only God. Let's pray. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this time. I pray you'll take these words, these passages from this holy epistle of 1 Corinthians. And by your Spirit, who resides in each one of us, may you stir us to action and to change. Stir us to let go of the things that bind us and weight us down. And help us to be people who are spiritual and not merely soulish and fleshly. Thank you for being our Savior, loving us so well. We praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen.